All right, how are we? Good, good. It's good to see you. If we have uh, not met yet, my name is Brian Barley, and I am one of the pastors of a church called The Summit in uh, downtown Denver, Colorado. There are a few stereotypes of Denverites that I feel like I should address on the front end. Um, one, this beard is not a fashion statement. This is not a desire to increase my level of hipsterness, coolness, relevancy. This past week in Denver, Colorado, it was eight degrees. Not eight zero degrees, not 80 degrees, eight degrees. So this sweater for my face helps me survive the winters in my neighborhood. Uh, the second thing people always ask me, I actually got asked it three times today, I think, is do I ski? I do not ski. Uh, I don't ski. So like... When you're picturing me in my city, do not like, picture me skiing from coffee shop to coffee shop or something like that. I am walking with a sweater on my face from coffee shop to coffee shop and restaurant to restaurant. The third question I get a lot of times asked about Denver, is Denver a hard place to start a new church? It is. It is a very difficult city. It is a very weird city. The gospel is very uh, peculiar there. I feel like the best way to capture the oddness of my city is to tell you a little bit about the space we meet in. We meet in a renovated warehouse, and we meet in the middle of the city and right off a street called Larimer Street. And Larimer Street right now is maybe the kind of the coolest street to be on um, in the city. We, we were there before it was cool, but um, now it's cool. And uh, there's restaurants and shops and bars and all this sort of stuff. And uh, in our warehouse, we have, I don't know if you can picture this. So imagine this is a warehouse, and imagine that wall over there. Almost the entire wall is like a giant bay door that you can push a button, and it comes all the way up. Well, Back in 2012, we used to actually hold our services when it was warm outside with the bay door open so that as we were gathering together as a church, you could look out from the bay door as we were gathering together as a church onto Larimer Street and see people walking back and forth to coffee shops and bars and restaurants like that. And it was always a bit distracting for me. Like the people enjoyed it. They thought it was kind of nice and lovely and a cool breeze would come in. It was terrible to preach in because you just perpetually saw people walking by and looking in and it was like a highly distracting thing. And the, Octo- the uh, October of 2012, the Sunday before Halloween, um, I finally, after this, was like, we got to shut this thing. I would look out onto Larimer Street, and not only were people walking by, but they were walking by in their Halloween costumes. So, like, I'm up here preaching, you're locked in, hopefully I'm impacting your life, and I'm looking out, and it's like, there goes Batman, okay, what's up? And there goes Superman, and there goes the, uh, the Incredible Hulk, and then all of a sudden, this dude walks by, and he's dressed like Jesus. So he walks by, and the bay door's open, and I'm preaching, and I'm trying to keep my train of thought going, is not let everybody else see what's going on, and there goes Jesus Christ. Well, a dude dressed up like Jesus Christ. And he's looking in the bay door, and he sees me preaching like this, and then he looks up, and we have a giant neon sign, this is a summit church that flickers onto Larimer Street, and he realizes that he, dressed as Jesus Christ, is staring into a church proclaiming the real Jesus Christ. And we lock eyes, and I'm still preaching the sermon as we are looking back at one another, and finally he just waves and goes on drinking, and I'm like, there goes Jesus. That, that, that sums up what it's like to plant a church in my neighborhood, Jesus is viewed sort of with the same seriousness as Superman, Batman, or the Incredible Hulk. We'll dress up like him for Halloween, but he is definitely not deserving of our worship and our obedience. And so, with, with all of that said, um, here's, here's kind of the heart of what I want to I challenge you towards tonight. I, I want to challenge you to be different for the glory of God. I want to challenge you to delight in being different. And, and really, 
in so many ways, that's what captures the heart of what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus trying to differentiate his people from the surrounding culture in which they exist. Even like the, 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 the regular repeating of the language, you've heard it said, but now I say to you, like in there is even a language differentiation, isn't it? Right, like you used to believe culturally it's supposed to be like this. Well, I've come to tell you that you are meant to be radically different. He is forming in this. Here's, here's key in understanding the Sermon on the Mount, that he's not just giving a bunch of instructions, he's not just giving a bunch of do's and don'ts, but he's forming a kingdom people who model kingdom living. And he is calling his people to be set apart, to be unique, and to break from the predominant cultural narrative of their day, to be different for the glory of God. Now, before we talk about this, let me uh, just give a bit of a warning. It is difficult to be different. Do you feel that at all? Like, it's difficult to be different. Like, probably in your school, people who are different are viewed immediately as being weird, aren't they? Um, people who dress different are looked at as being um, unusual. Even probably some of you feel that in the midst of your friend group. Probably you and your friend group dress fairly alike. Like, it's weird if you dress exactly alike, but you can't be so different that everybody gets thrown off. And even if you do come into that friend group and you wear like a pair of shoes or you put on a pair of pants that's like radically different than what anybody in that friend group has ever worn before, all you can think about is that you're wearing a different pair of pants, can't you? You're like, do they notice my pants? Do they notice my pants? Do they notice my pants? And then if they don't say something, you're like, they hate my pants. I should have never worn these pants. Like that's how it's difficult to be different even in the smallest of ways and it's really difficult to be different when the greatest pursuit of our lives in a culture that in a million different ways is feeding within us this kingdom of self. It's all about you. It's all about what feels right. It's all about your desires. You got to do what makes you happy. To, to surrender all of that and, and to declare like, no, I, I want to make Jesus most important. I want to lay down my life. I want to I lose my life so that I might find life. Like that's, that's weird. That's different. That's unpopular. And it's really difficult. But what I hope, um, if you struggle with that difficulty, and I think we all do. You know, like if you're on a sports team, if you're in a school where like, you know, like you want to do something more than cultural Christianity. You want to do like authentic biblical Christianity. Like I want to do the real thing. And that's going to differentiate you from your peers and your friends and your, your, your teammates and your classmates. What I'm hoping will happen is in the first um, two verses of the Lord's Prayer from Matthew chapter 6, there's this tremendous comfort that comes to you, that gives you permission not only to be different for the glory of God, but to understand that's actually where your deepest joy, your greatest happiness, where the greatest sense of purpose for life is actually found. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to dive into the first two verses of the Lord's Prayer as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount. I hope it's helpful to you. I didn't grow up in church, uh, like I said this morning. Um, this is my third time at Impact, so this is my third time at a student thing ever, because we don't really have these things uh, in Denver, so it's really good to, to be here. A lot of you have done this a lot more than me. Um, so for me, my familiarity with the Lord's Prayer was before football games. We'd pray it. Um, we didn't talk about what the significance was whatsoever. It was like, it was just sort of this vague, like, yeah, I hope God helps us murder those dudes for his glory. Like, you know, let's do it. You know, and it's like, what does this mean? Like, what, what are you talking about? You know, it's just like this empty ritual, like we just pray it so we can win. So I'm hoping that if that's the way you think about the Lord's Prayer, uh, this actually gives you a little bit better news uh, than this. So here's what we're going to do. Two big ideas. We're going to talk about the comfort that comes from the Father, and we're going to talk about the kingdom 
of the Father that really emerges in the opening two verses of the Lord's Prayer. So the context of the conversation is Jesus is teaching those who, will, who are exploring following him how to pray, and he says this in verse 9 of Matthew chapter 6. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, this is what's so important, all right? is Jesus is giving you a call to give your life away for the kingdom of God, which is immediately what he was going to say next. As Jesus is giving you a call to give your life away for the kingdom of God, he's immediately rooting this call in a declaration that you are more, something more than a mere citizen in a political regime, something more than a mere soldier receiving marching orders from a king, but you're a son or a daughter in the loving arms of a heavenly father. So that we can declare... In what Jesus is saying here, I am more than a citizen in regime, I am more than a soldier in an army, but I am a child in the loving arms of a heavenly father. Now, this is a really powerful cultural theme. Think about this in your own life. Nothing really impacts our lives quite like our relationship with our dads. The, 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 the theme of fatherhood is one of the most powerful themes that you see in all of culture. So, for example, I'll give you a couple examples I saw over the past year. Um, anybody see Into the Spider-Verse? Anybody see that movie? Yes. That was my favorite movie the last year. I saw it three times in theaters. I kept trying to find people. I'm like a giant superhero nerd, so if I just sort of throw out a Thanos quote here or there, it'll just, you know, just roll with it, okay? My church always judges me for it. I feel like this is a safer place for me to be like, I'm a total nerd, hopefully for the glory of God. So, so into the Spider-Verse, right? Like there was, you know, it's like all about this evolution of kind of a boy becoming a man and finding his identity, but the theme of fatherhood and his, Miles Morales' relationship with his dad, that was one of the predominant themes of that film. I don't know if anybody played God of War, the game of the year over the last year. Like at the root of the most popular video game of the last year is this theme of fatherhood. It is inescapable in our cultural influences of the day because nothing impacts our lives quite like the theme of fatherhood. And all of this is going back to what Jesus is acknowledging in verse 9, that before we give our lives away for the kingdom of God, we have to understand the heart of God as our heavenly father. Okay, this is really important for you to understand. I'm going to say it again. I know I'm saying the same thing over and over again. It's not because I'm lacking of material. I just really want you to understand this. Before we give our lives away for the kingdom of God, we have to understand the heart of God as our heavenly father. We have to understand this theme of fatherhood. So let's try to push into this um, a little bit. So a little bit about me. I am a dad. I'm a dad of two girls. I'm going to show you the obligatory family photo here. This is us. This is the only time I've worn a tie in the last two or three years, but we were at a wedding and so I dressed up. So uh, that's me. Uh, Over to the left is my beautiful wife, Megan. Um, She is holding our oldest daughter, Hannah, and I am holding our youngest daughter, Gracie. Our family is a little unusual in that my wife is half Peruvian. My oldest daughter is adopted from Taiwan, which is a little uh, country off the coast of mainland China. And then Gracie, if you can't tell, has my skin tone, and she is uh, biologically uh, ours. So we, we always, when Gracie was born, we were always hoping, like, get the Peruvian skin tone, get the Peruvian skin tone, and she got the Irish skin tone. And so we just go to the beach, and we're just in the shade the entire time because we, we don't tan, we burn. Uh, that's... that's, that's that's uh, what we do. Now, um, my introduction into fatherhood was with uh, Hannah there over, over to the left. And um, uh, maybe you'll just file this away for like, yeah, there she is right there. You can go ahead and go to it. Go ahead. Give the people what they want. Uh, there she is right there. 
Will you hear anything else I have to say at this point? We'll have to take another picture at some point. So that's her. That's on her first day of preschool. She is rocking the Spider-Man high tops, if you can't tell. Um, we try to teach her it's not a contest to be the coolest kid in school, but if it was a contest, she would win with those shoes. And, uh, yeah. And so there she is right there. And so we adopted Hannah from Taiwan. Go ahead and take the picture down so people can concentrate on what I, what I uh, have to say from here on out. All right. So we... Uh, so, you know, maybe you'll file this away for some of you 20 years from now. But, um, you know, sometimes in culture and even in church culture, uh, choosing to adopt is just because, like, you can't get pregnant. Um, a lot of times people even assume that, like, oh, you adopted because you couldn't get pregnant. That was never me and my wife's story. We wanted to prioritize growing our family in adoption because there's kids all over the world who need parents and need people to uh, intercede for them and advocate for them. And so we felt like God uniquely called us to prioritize growing our family through um, adoption, and it was a really difficult process. I was even, I was getting my hair cut two days ago, and the, the lady cutting my hair was asking the story, and uh, she asked, was it hard? I was like, it was so unbelievably hard. We um, waited over a year to get matched with a child, and on May 5th, 2014, we got a phone call uh, telling us that we had a little girl um, in Taiwan waiting for us. Did we want her or not? Of course, of course we want her. Cinco de Mayo, best Cinco de Mayo uh, of our lives. Uh, a couple weeks later, uh, it was the Friday of Memorial Day weekend, and we get a second phone call from Taiwan telling us that the political climate of Taiwan is changing, and the laws are changing, and basically, if we do not get in the necessary paperwork to say we want to adopt um, Hannah, that's what we had decided to name her, if we didn't uh, get in the paperwork to adopt Hannah, by Monday she would be under the new system as opposed to the old system and consequently um, it would, she'd be stuck, like she wouldn't be able to come home. And so they said to us, you need to get this paperwork in like now. So literally got that phone call, my wife and I hop in our car and we drive into the city and we go to the FedEx slash Kinko's to get this paperwork sent off overnight. It doesn't matter what the price is. And so I dropped my wife off at the FedEx Kinko's. I live in a city, there's no parking, so you never just like pull in front of something, park and go in, you drop off your wife, and then you circle the block like 17 times. So circle the block, circle the block, circle the block, circle the block, finally find a spot way far away, pay the meter, walk to the FedEx Kinko's, and I walk in through the double doors, and I see my wife hunched over like this, just weeping, and she looks up at me, and she says, it can't get there in time. I tend to think that I can fix anything. <laughs> so I was like, well, they haven't talked to me about this yet, right? So I go to the workers. It's like, you don't understand. This is really important. This has to get there. They're like, I mean, you, you literally, like, unless you take it yourself, it's not going to work. Okay, okay. Well, all right. Then we'll call everybody else. We'll call UPS and we'll call whatever. We're Googling, like, overnight express stuff. How do we, like, we're calling them in the FedEx slash Kinko's. Can you deliver it? Can you deliver it? Can you deliver it? No, 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 no. And so the next place that I Google is Expedia.com on my iPhone and look up flights to Taiwan to say, all right, like, if the only way to get the, the paperwork there is for me to deliver it, I'll deliver it. And I booked a flight in that FedEx Kinko's to go to Taiwan about 12 hours later. Is that inconvenient? Yes, it is. Is a flight to Asia on 12 hours notice expensive? It is, in case you were ever curious uh, about it. <laughs> and did I know exactly how it was going to work? I didn't. Okay, so, so the next morning, you know, that night we go home, pay for the flight, money's no object, pack my bags to go to Taiwan for some indefinite period of time, 
with paperwork. Hop on this flight, fly there. I do not like flying. It's like 14 hours to fly to Taiwan. So I'm on this plane for 14 hours, anxious the entire time. Land, navigate this passport, or this uh, airport. Don't, don't have any idea what's going on. Mandarin, Chinese, and English are not similar languages. I don't know if you know that or not. They're not similar languages. Finally find somebody who looks like they can help me. They finally help me after I've landed in Taipei. Find the home that my daughter's in about two hours away. I walk in through the double doors of the home that she's in, and I hand in the paperwork saying, like, we want to be her parents. And I said, where's my daughter? And they handed her to me, and I just held her in my arms, and I just, like, wept all over her. And she just looked at me like, who are you? Like, who, who is this strange white man weeping, <laughs> weeping, weeping over me? And, um, and that's the way we met. And um, like four or five months later, she came home, and now she's got like a normal story, like a normal kid. And, you know, you saw the picture of her. She's getting ready to start kindergarten in the fall. Before this session, she FaceTimed me for the very first time in her life. I don't to be proud or scared, mixture of both. Um, but I was like, oh, my wife's calling me. And then I was like, she was like, Dad, I learned how to FaceTime. I'm like, okay. Um, so she, she FaceTimed me and, um, and uh, even asked her, I was like, hey, is it cool if I share your story tonight? She's like, yeah, it's fine. So she has our consent to be talking about this. And, um, you know, it's interesting, though, because she's five and, you know, she can do things like FaceTime and she can do things like um, learn about her story and she can do things like, um, you know, ask about it. And so this is one of the things we, we've talked a lot about. I, she's heard the story. She's heard the story of the way that her and daddy met for the very first time. And you know how I, um, you, you know, she, she's now starting to have categories of, like, how hard it was. And she'll even ask questions like, Daddy, was that hard? Was that difficult? Like, why did you? And you know what I say to her when she asks me that question? I say it was like the hardest thing ever, and you better be so grateful. And if you're not grateful, I'm going to be so angry. And I might even withdraw my love from you. You know, like that's, no, you know what I say? You know what I say every single time? I don't say that in case you miss that, okay? I don't say that. You know what I say to her? I say to her, I did not think twice about doing this. This is just what dads do. That's what I say to her. I'm like, this is just what dads do. Dads take care of their kids. Dads take care of their kids. That's what they do. They, money's no object for dads. Dads figure it out. Here's what's so amazing to me about that particular reality is later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to radically redefine our understanding of the fatherhood of God. And here's what he's going to say in Matthew chapter 6, verse 11. He says, if you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The point, the point of me sharing that story is not you guys being like, wow, like what a dad. The point is to be like, for any dad who loves his kids, that's the way we take care of our kids. And what Jesus is saying as he's giving a radical redefinition of the fatherhood of God is, yes, even you, Brian Barley, who are totally depraved and sinful, instinctually love giving good gifts to your kids, fighting for your kids, protecting your kids. Money's no object for your kids. And if you understand that and are sinful, how much more so is the goodness of God infinitely incomparable in his love for his children. 
What Jesus is trying to do for us is to elevate within us our understanding of the magnitude of God's love for us, his care for us, his provision for us. And even, you know, even I understand that it's like there's a certain insensitivity that you could be feeling right now where you could be like, my dad doesn't fight for me that way. He doesn't think about me that way. My dad abandoned me. He's emotionally abandoned me. He's hurt me. I'm not trying to be dismissive or in any way kind of be like, oh, that's no big deal whatsoever. But even if that's your story, what Jesus is trying to do by the power of his spirit in your life is to understand that where your earthly father has failed you, your heavenly father meets you and redeems you and restores you. And that even the best earthly father. Now I'm trying to dismiss the significance of that, but even the best earthly father is incomparable to the magnitude of the goodness and the love and the care and the provision of a heavenly father who loves you infinitely more than thou. And so what happens for us then when Jesus in verse 9 is recalibrating our hearts and minds to begin with our Father in heaven. And as he prepares to give our lives away for his kingdom, he's, he's trying to help you understand that this call in your life is not just, again, you're sort of this like um, cog in a machine called the kingdom of God and you better accomplish its will. Like you're not just an employee in the company. You're not just a uh, citizen in a larger political regime. You are a, look at me, you are a beloved daughter of the king of the universe. You are a beloved son of the king of the universe. You have a heavenly father who loves you. If you're impressed at all with my story of like oh, going to Asia and all that money, you know what's infinitely more complex than going from the U.S. to Asia is stepping out of heaven into history to redeem broken sinners. You know that? Like, yeah. You know, what's, you know what's infinitely more costly than like Expedia.com on 12 hours notice to go to Taiwan? It is expensive, okay? I'm not trying to dismiss that. We're still figuring it out a little bit. But you know what's more costly than that? The Son of God on the cross, in our place, taking our sin so that we might be redeemed and reconciled back to a God who loves us and made us. And, and all of that then... When Jesus is saying then, like, hey, you should put the kingdom of God first, our response should never be one of, like, dutiful obligation. Oh, I guess I got to do this, so I need to go to the good place as opposed to the bad place one day when I die, if those things are even real. That's not a compelling vision for life. And you know what? And that guilt will only sustain you for a little period of time. But a glimpse of the Father's love for you will sustain you until you come to breathe your final breath. And to say, this is the good life. This is the life that's truly life. This is worth me being weird for and different for and mocked for and to look like I'm losing to everybody else around me when really our glimpse is on Christ and Christ alone to say, no, that's the life that's truly life. And consequently, that's what I will give my life away to. Now, all right, so he's rooting us in the fatherhood of God. All right. Secondly, then, how much time do I have? Which one's, okay, that one's counting down. Okay. <laughs> I just sort of black out for a second. Now I'm back. Okay. Secondly, 
Comfort of the Father, the kingdom of the Father. <clears throat> so immediately following Jesus telling us about the, God's fatherhood, he tells us then about God's kingdom. He says this in verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now it's interesting, let's do some fun exegetical work. It's interesting because the theme of the kingdom is so predominant. If you read through Matthew 1 up to this particular point. So for example, you see that Jesus is born in the context of one of the most corrupt kingdoms in the history of the world. The guy's named Herod. Do a Google search about him. He was simultaneously one of the most powerful and most corrupt people ever. One of the worst political regimes in the history of the world. This is the context into which Jesus chooses to be born. It is a declaration of war against the earthly principalities and evils of the day. Jesus truly is born and into enemy-occupied territory. Then you fast forward to Matthew 3. John the Baptist kicks off the ministry of Jesus by declaring repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You fast forward to Matthew 5. Jesus echoes the exact same thing. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then we come again here to the kingdom of God um, being referenced again here on uh, the Lord's prayer. Now, as we kind of try to wrap our mind around what, what is God's kingdom, I want to talk to you about Three particular realities that I think are orbiting around the central idea. I'll give you a simple definition, then we'll try to unpack what it looks like in our lives. So, as we think about the kingdom, three ideas. One would be God's reign. That is that God is king. That God is exclusively deserving of being the ultimate authority in the universe. That our minds should just go, is if there is a God, if the God of Genesis 1-1 is real, like he is the one who's in charge. He's the one who's in charge. Not me, not that celebrity, not that cultural influencer, not that Instagram influencer who's not actually influential whatsoever. Whoever, it's like, like God is king, all right? To God's realm. So God is king and God has the right to rule over every single area of life to the very ends of the earth. Every area of life the very ends of the earth. Uh, a guy by the name of Abraham Kuyper, he declares this, the famous statement, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Three, so God's reign, he has the right to rule. God's realm, God has the right to rule over every area of life to the very ends of the earth and the totality of the cosmos. Three, God's people, that God graciously invites his people into the privilege of extending his reign and rule to every part of life and to every part of the globe, all right? So every part of life and culture and to every part of the globe. Or to put it very simply, as we are praying for it to be on earth as it is in heaven and as we are striving to be a kingdom people, this is the language we use with, with our church, is that we're longing for and we're laboring towards being a people who put on display the goodness of what life looks like when Jesus Christ is Lord and King. That's what we're after. Like, we want to be people who are characterized as kingdom people. We are conducting our lives in such a way that we are putting on display the goodness of what life looks like when Jesus Christ is King. Now, um, it's interesting. Before we kind of talk about, like, what, what would that look like, um, we have to acknowledge the experience and the existence of warring kingdoms. Uh, Another interesting theme that pops up if you study the opening chapters of Matthew and the theme of the kingdom is that when Satan, our enemy, tempts Jesus, one of the ways that he tempts him, we see in Matthew chapter four, verse eight, is that Jesus, or Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. That's a really interesting detail that's thrown in there. So not only are there competing expressions of kingdom, 
in culture and in the world, but they even offer some element of a fleeting taste of promise of offer of glory. And so as we think about that, we have to, as we're trying to give our lives away to the one great kingdom that's worth us giving our lives away to, to to do the hard work in our own lives to say, okay, like what else would compete? What else would, what sort of counterfeit expression of glory would I compromise for and settle for instead of giving myself to the real thing? Now, there's a lot of those, right? And um, my time is limited to just one, but probably the biggest one that I just want you to self-diagnose in your life is, I'll, I'll just call it like the kingdom of self. The kingdom of self. And I think at the root of American culture, for most of us, this is the predominant narrative. It's all about you. It's all about you being happy. As you think about significant major future life decisions, right? Like you're, you're young. You're at a place where people are asking questions like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Where do you want to live when you grow up? And a lot of times what culture is pressuring you to do is to answer those most important questions about life. Like where you live, what you do, how you handle your money, how you view your sexuality. All this stuff, the most important questions of life are answered through the filter of, well, like what do I want? What feels right, what makes me happy, what makes me feel comfortable. Even if you think about this a lot of times in culture when people are asking one another their opinion about something really significant, maybe the most popular way that somebody responds to a question is, I don't know, just do whatever makes you happy. Anybody ever heard that before? Like, I don't know, you just got to do you, right? Like, just do what feels right. And that, okay, what is that? That's kingdom of self-thinking. Um, what, what I hope is the overflow of hearing all these people um, sort of say the same thing to you over and over and over again, is if like you came into a situation and you saw somebody like getting advice, like, like you have a friend and she's trying to figure out if she should date this guy or not, and if you're just witnessing that, she's like, I don't know, like should I, I don't know if that's the way girls talk, but like, I don't know, I don't know if, like that's like, should I date this guy, should I not date this guy? And like you ever see another friend go into her and they're like, oh no, you gotta like just do what makes you happy. I know, again, this is my best girl voice, but you know, you just gotta, you just gotta do whatever makes you happy. You gotta just gotta do do, do whatever feels right. Like, I hope after this weekend, I, know, I don't know if this is a sanctified thing or not, but I'm just going to put it out there because it seems like a safe place. I hope that if you're witnessing that conversation go down and you see one friend trying to make, like, the most important decision about her life in that moment and another friend counsel her with the advice of, like, you just got to do whatever makes you happy, like, that would not be appealing to you. It would be gross to you. Like, it would just be disgusting to you. Like, you would throw up a little bit in your mouth in response to the grossness of, like, oh, that is kingdom of self thinking. I want to totally turn that upside down and I want to see the people in my sphere of influence not make the most important decisions of their lives through the lens of what feels right or what makes me most happy or through the lens of selfishness, but instead I want to see the people around me reintroduced to the God who made them and consequently have that be the lens through which they make the most important decisions of the way that they handle themselves and understand that actually their deepest joy and satisfaction is found in there. And so maybe, here, here's what I want to do. I, I, would, I would love, one of the things I love talking to students, one of the reasons I love talking to students is because there's sort of this wide-eyed possibility of the future. Um, one of the things that happens with the people that I minister to, like the people I minister to are like in their late 20s, early 30s, and you're in this stage of life, and there's sort of this, like, we can do anything. And, um, and now I'm trying to work with a group of people that are, like, 
if I could just go skiing next weekend, that's the dream. Um, if I could just, like, get through whatever I'm binging on Netflix, that's the dream. And we're trying to, like, reimagine, like, hey, God's called you to more than just, like, binging your Netflix show so you can talk to your coworkers about it on Monday. God has a greater plan for your life than that. Thanks be to him. So there's this, this wide-eyed optimism, right? This, this sense of, like, gosh, I could, do, I could do anything in my future. And, gosh, what I would love to encourage you to be the fruit of this, of this weekend is that you would envision a future where as you think about the most important areas of your life, like the way that you're going to handle your time and the relationships that you're going to cultivate and the way that you'll handle your sexuality and who it is that you're going to date and the way that you're going to think about where you live someday and the type of career that you're pursuing, that the lens through which you would understand who you're going to be and the type of legacy that you leave to the next generation, which might not even be on your radar right now, but I'm telling you that's biblical thinking, beloved. It is. That the Bible is a book that's perpetually challenged you, even from your youth as the culture would identify you, but you're not. You're adults to think long about your life and to think about what sort of world am I living behind me a hundred years from now. And to say that kingdom of self thinking destroys, kingdom of God thinking leads to flourishing and God getting the glory and us getting joy and us leaving in our wake a godly legacy so that our children and our grandchildren would rise up and call us blessed someday. And so as you're thinking about like the lens through like, okay, where is it that I'm going to live? That the place you go is not like, hey, where's coolest, where's safest, where's most comfortable, where's closest to my biological family because like my mom would kill me if ever I move away ever. But instead to say, like, where could I make maximum kingdom impact? Like, what if just even you in this room, I'm not talking like the churches across the globe, but I'm talking about like, what if hundreds of students counterculturally thought about where they live for the next 20 years through the lens of maximum kingdom impact? And that would trump everything else, every question of safety, every, com- every question of cost, every question of comfort. What could happen for the glory of God? As you think about what you're going to do with your life and and kind of what career you're going to pursue and things like that, the lens would not be like, okay, here's Americanism. It's like, how do I get as much money for as little work as possible? That's the American dream. How do I do is get as much stuff? Yeah, some of you are like, I like that. I like, okay, I'm trying to get you to a place you throw up in your mouth a little bit when you hear that, right? Like, no, instead, how do I have a job, a career? I'm not saying you have to go into ministry or be a missionary, but maybe you get a quote-unquote secular job that gives you the opportunity to be able to move overseas or to move to a major urban center where it's expensive and you can actually make money to afford there and to fund a new church there. You can do something good for the glory of God that helps the mission go forward in an absolutely necessary way. As you think about your relationships, you wouldn't view them through the lens of selfishness right? A lot of times that's the way that we even, I mean, I can still, I know this is, I know that like probably at student conferences, they don't like the guy who's like in his mid-30s being like, went back in my day in high school, but back in my day in high school. Um, you know, you go into the lunchroom and you're like surveying, I don't know if you guys are like more tolerant now, but it was like, it was like 
um, it was like Lord of the Flies in my lunchroom. It was just merciless, right? You've got a hierarchy going on of like coolest to least cool, and everybody is trying to ruthlessly like work their way up the social hierarchy, just totally at the expense of all the people around them. Ruthless, just absolutely, absolutely brutal. And all the while, the people that were viewed as unlovable or uncareable or unworthy of even being seated with were ignored and marginalized and mocked to sort of work their way up that ladder of coolness that like at the top was nothing good whatsoever except being like the coolest person in high school which once you get my age it doesn't matter that much especially if you were like ruining the lives of people in the process of getting there and instead kingdom thinking turns that upside down to say who are the marginalized who are the ignored who are the people that are thinking about hurting themselves killing themselves taking their own lives because they've been mocked and ignored and made fun of again and again and again in all of culture what makes us cool in this culture is to like make fun of that person and let them know how weird they are and different they are and instead say no as Jesus was to me so I'll be to them and I will go to them and I will love them and I will see them as an image it means that as we step out into broader culture and we desire to do justice, we do justice for the glory of God. I'm sure a lot of you are in places where even amongst your normal friend group, it's just sort of like common, uh, 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 it's a common experience for like um, jokes to be made about people who aren't the same skin tone as you and for racism to be kind of this humorous thing and it's a countercultural thing to be like ha 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 ha, uh, racism is the best, let's all laugh about this but instead of being like that, instead of being like no, those are fellow image bearers I understand you talk this way just around us but it's not, allowed, it's not okay to talk that way in front of me anymore because I love those people, I love them, they're image bearers of the divine who uniquely reflect God's glory back to me. As you look at women who are at risk, that wouldn't be something just to ignore or to just oversee but said you would go to those women and care for them. When you look at children who are easy to ignore, uh, instead you would adopt them and care for them and protect them and fight for them and protect and prioritize growing your family by bringing them and welcoming them into yours because that's the way God treated you with his. I know it seems like almost like too much to ask, but this is what Jesus is asking here in the Lord's Prayer. It's like the thing that we, without even thinking about it, pray before football games so that we hopefully win. But Jesus is after something better than that, that actually what would radically reshape our lives is that we would, in every area of life, be different, even if it's a great expense to our, ourselves. And that the lens through which you think about the rest of your life would be one of not selfishness and not comfort and not safety and not security, but maximum kingdom impact and maximum kingdom glory because it's there where God's glory is maximized and it's there where your actually greatest and deepest joy is found as well. So um, here's how I want to close. Um, I was thinking this afternoon about <coughs> uh, my, my daughter's experience of coming into the U.S. Um, it's funny because like a, a decent amount of my family are immigrants. So like my mother-in-law immigrated from Peru. Um, my daughter immigrated from Taiwan. There's this really interesting uh, thing that happens like when you enter into the country. I don't know if, if you have any immigrants in your life. But what's interesting is um, when they come into the country, they, uh, you know, and they become citizens of the U.S., there's this weird thing, even my daughter had to go through this, where they had to, like, renounce the citizenship of, like, where they came from and then, like, declare allegiance to the citizenship to which they now 
belong to, which is weird for a 10-month-old to do, to be like, I renounce my citizenship to Taiwan. You know, it's like she didn't do that. So we had to do it for her. We had to do it for her. And I announced my allegiance to the United States of America. That's a, that's a normal, okay, renunciation and the pledging of allegiance. That, that's really the lens through which I'm hoping that you would maybe think about the outcome of this entire weekend. That like right now, in this moment, there would be a renunciation of allegiance to anything other than the kingdom of God and the work of Jesus Christ. And your primary allegiance would not be one to a political affiliation, it would not be one to a cultural affiliation, it would not be to a national affiliation, it would not be to a personal affiliation, but it would say anything other than the kingdom of Jesus, I renounce, I'm done with. And the way that my daughter sort of had to do. I'm done with that. And say, I declare allegiance to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. He is the one who directs my life. He is the one that I will, regardless of what he asks for me, I am going to submit myself to. I am going to believe. I am going to obey. I am going to walk in, regardless of the cost. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That doesn't even make you radical. It just makes you a serious Christian. And that's what it is. To seriously say the kingdom of God is my primary allegiance and it's to that kingdom I am going to give the totality of my life. So that's why I want to lead you in praying uh, right now is just thinking about that and processing that and, um, and maybe even some of you for the very first time, for the very first time are like, you know what? I'm tired of living for the kingdom of myself and I'm tired of living for the kingdom of like my parents' approval and I'm tired of living for the kingdom of like, what the celebrity, who I don't really know, even though it feels a, bit, a little bit, because like, I can kind of interact with him on social media, says. I want to renounce all of that. And I want to make the kingdom of God my greatest treasure, my singular pursuit, what I make the most important decisions of my life around. Let's pray. Father, uh, we love you, and it's a privilege to come to you as father, and I just pray even tonight there would be in this moment a radical redefinition of what fatherhood even means. Uh, I think, pray that in particular for the men and women here who um, the word father is deeply painful and deeply hurtful and feels uh, like something they shouldn't even kind of think about. And that the fatherhood of you expressed in the Sermon on the Mount would... Um, provide for us maybe where there's a lot of restlessness and pain, safety and security, the type of safety and security that uh, puts us in a place where we feel safe to risk for you. We feel safe to fail for you. We feel safe to um, give our lives away for you. And what I just wanna pray for is um, students here who don't really know you. Uh, maybe they were pressured to be here. Um, maybe they're in a home environment where it's sort of like, it's sort of expected that you like agree to this stuff and um, and it's just sort of been like imposed on them as, as instead of being seen as like something to be treasured and to enjoy and to be beautiful. And um, I just pray that by the power of your spirit, you would open their heart to see who you are and the goodness. Like this is not empty cultural religion. This is not tradition. Um, this is the good news of a God who loves us so much. He would come across the totality of the cosmos to redeem us and reconcile us back to himself. And so God, I pray that that, the beauty of that would shine in men and women's hearts for the very first time maybe tonight or maybe even reawaken um, for men and women tonight. And that the overflow of that, of that safety and that love would just be a real willingness to give our lives away for your glory 
and to make some really difficult decisions, to reach out to some really difficult people, to love the people who've been viewed as being unlovable, to love the people on the margins, to see men and women reconciled back to you. Let us risk radically and greatly for your glory and for your joy. Please do this in the power of your spirit and the lives of your people in the coming weeks and months and years. And we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.